A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Den här podcasten presenteras av Sonos. Uh, good evening, afternoon, morning, ladies, gentlemen and others. I'm Lydia Lunch. I'm in Stockholm at a... Well, I can't give you the address, but it's obvious because I think everybody that comes on the show is probably sitting in the same seat as me. However, the room that I'm in is not necessarily as important as the fact that I consider my body a hotel where many monsters live. So when you reduce a hotel into a contained room, well, you just never know what's going to happen. Now, I see a lot of, I'll say brats, I think they're brats, dolls. I'm not just talking about uh, my host. I mean, I think he's a bit of a fucking brat as well. But, you know, what's great about him is he's very enthusiastic and young and he will testify to the fact that although people tend to paint their fear on my face, I think he calmed down the minute I insisted he rest his head against my bosom and I touched him. But he can talk all about that in a minute. I was just saying, um, yeah, I was at a bar, of course, last night that serves garlic shots. What's it called? Brotherna Olson, the Brothers Olson. Did, did you try the garlic shots? No, I didn't, but when I'm ill, I definitely will. And I had a little escapade with the police, actually, on my way here. I mean, not today. Um, Did you get in trouble with the law again? Usually the law is in trouble with me. (laughs) So, really glad to be here. Oh, let me just... What happened a few days ago, and I have been known to make cops cry within 20 seconds. I have hats from police forces all over. I have taken photos of cops in every country... I figure if their job is to protect and serve, it should be me on their knees. I'm so, you, so you collect cop hats as trophies? Cop hats, cop cards. Um, I have actually more gun training than just about any police force in the world because when I moved to New Orleans, 17 cops were arrested. So I figured to protect myself both against the criminal element and the cops, the real criminal element, I took gun training, and when I start flirting with an officer of the law, and then eventually, like within one minute, I tell him I have more gun training than he does, so and you, more you, boxing. So you go to a shooting range? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, I well, that- I mean, now, when I live in New York, I don't have a gun. Okay, so any other city in America that I live in, I think as a woman... You need to have a gun, and you need to be trained in it, and you need to know self-defense. It's just how it is in America. It's not. It's just the way it is. In New York, it's not necessary because it's just too crowded for really crap to happen. When I moved to New Orleans in 1990, it was the John Wayne Law was still in effect, which meant if you had a gun, you could go outside with it as long as it was exposed. Now, to me, this was insanity. I was not going to be parading down the street with a holster on. This is just insanity. That would be a good look, though. 
I have my weapons and I know how to use them and it is a good look, but there's no re- I cause enough of a panic or a threat, as you well know, but without, when I'm not even armed. Anyway, uh, what happened on the way to Stockholm? So I was in Portugal doing a festival with my three-piece female improvisational group called Medusa's Bed. Don't worry, you don't know about it, nobody does. And I stopped in Barcelona to pick up some stuff because I'd lived there for eight years and now I'm in the process of moving some stuff back to America. And I was taking it to Paris to um, have my friend ship it for free. So I just packed a large bag. And the last thing I put in there, and I had totally forgotten, was a pair of 1919, that's the year, really gorgeous brass knuckles. Now, brass knuckles, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, to punch people with. Well, or a paperweight. Depending. I mean, usually if I'm going to punch somebody, I prefer to do a bare knuckle, but that's just me. I do like to box. Uh, so anyway, my bag was stuffed with various tchotchkes, clothes, books. I mean, nothing that I thought would be a threat. So I'm ready to board the plane going to Paris. And fortunately, it wasn't like the day before I was coming here for a gig. I had a few days off. I was uh, not allowed to board the plane and was escorted about a mile through the airport every which way and into the basement to what I call the Naughty Bag Lounge, escorted by three very handsome officers of the Guardia Civil with machine guns. One asking me if I had a bomb in my back, jokingly, and I'm like, I have a bomb in my head and it's about ready to fucking explode. Um, The thing with... Figures of authority is I always get them to laugh immediately. And, and of course, you know, I can, you, you know, I can change my appearance. You see, do you see what's happening here? <laughs> you know, I can put a bit of the Barbie doll effect on. Of course, it's absolutely uh, the absolute obvious uh, opposition of what I am. Anyway, they take me to the Naughty Bag Lounge. And they said, it seems that you have a dangerous weapon in your bag. And I really, I had forgotten that the last thing I packed was brass knuckles. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, all right, well, open. Can, they, can you, in America, they would have just taken it out, left you a note, you were done with it, you get on the plane. But here, no, no, Re- no. Really? I, th- I thought you went to Guantanamo for trying to carry on a brass well, knuckle in I, the States. I'm telling you, first of all, I get down to the Naughty Bag Lounge and I tell them, well, wait a minute. What about a body search? What about a pat down? And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> they're like, no, no, no. I'm like, well, wait a minute, you're ripping me off. Uh, so they make me extract these beautiful 1919 brass knuckles, and they start fingering them, which they are a very sexy item. I and I even said, aren't they? I said, excuse me, I'm a woman. I'm rather petite. It's a paperweight. But do you really? I mean, it's in my check bag. It's not in my carry-on bag. Why? What is a dangerous weapon? First of all, what is it? I said, my face could be considered. I said, these two fingers, you can kill a man with two fingers. My fist is a dangerous weapon. They could not tell me what another dangerous weapon would be. Of course, you're not going to transport guns. We're not silly. But they couldn't tell me. I had knives in my bag. They didn't take them. But I said, why is a brass knuckle checked in a bag from a woman who's five foot four a dangerous weapon? Well, you might hurt somebody. I said, look at me. I might hurt somebody. Do you want to confiscate me? They wanted my address. I said, only if you give me yours. (laughs) And anyway... (sighs) Speaking of guns, I know that you said at some point that gunshots had a relaxing or soothing effect on you. I I think you were talking about hip-hop and how they use gunshot sounds in hip-hop songs. I mean, I do do like to relax to murder rap. It's true. Um, I just, I do find it soothing. Well, I... Grew up in a uh, in a very war torn area of upstate New York. Race riots twice were in front of my house when I was five and eight. And you're from Rochester, right? Ro- Rochester is a good way. It is Rochester. Rochester. Oh. But um, you know, there was a lot of uh, civil unrest, civil unrest in the early '60s and, and mid '60s when I was a child, and I really think that that protest. And you know, now we're talking about. 64 and 67, and 18 cities in America in 67 had race riots, which um, I embraced and think that really it probably inspired my sense of protest. Frederick Douglass had the Underground Railroad there. Emma Goldman, you know, was there. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X spoke there. Sela Linsky came there. It had a really radical political underbelly, but at the same time was highly racist because... Nobody knew what black people were until they started coming there by invitation to work and then under fraudulent conditions. I really think that 
being exposed to that as a young age gave me my uh, sense of protest because I say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, equal pay for equal work. Nobody can argue with that except my father and you know what happened to him. He died before he was my age. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go, I actually wanted to play you a rap song by, by a group that I discovered through you because you kept talking about them in interviews Oops. so much that I became a huge Ghetto Boys fan. Oh, Ghetto Boys. So let's listen. Back up in your ass with the resurrection Is the group harder than an erection That shows no affection They want to ban us on Capitol Hill Cause it's die motherfuckers die motherfuckers All alone it was a ghetto Nothing but the ghetto Taking short steps one foot at a time And kept my head low and never let go Cause if I let go then I'd be fineless I'm going insane I know you went to Houston to interview him for um, Spin, Spin Magazine. Spin Magazine, and they, and right. they, Yes, it, um, yes. Did well, they publish it or what no, happened to No, 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 kill fee, <laughs> which is only appropriate. But it wasn't the only time I was at a rap concert where I, I did have a friend with me, a, a girlfriend with me, where I was the only white female in the audience. I, there was two of us that time. I felt very comfortable. I love rap music. Um, uh... I, as, as I tell people, if they knew what I really look like, it'd be Biggie motherfucking small, so back up, Jack. Don't <laughs> really? let, don't let the Mae West body and the white skin fool you. When I tell white boys that, they usually run out of the room and hide, but that's okay. When I tell a 65-year-old black man that, he understands what I'm saying. Oh, fuck, Chuck's on a killing spree again. We guillotine for men. I walk around town with a frown on my face. Fuck the whole world, gonna catch a murder case. The murder rate. There's a great quote from you about rap music. You once said, It's the only form of music which hates the rest of the world as much as I do. I'm a genius, what can I say? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that I'm, I'm, what I, I think that what I do with spoken word, not with the music, I don't do rap music, although I did have one kind of RB rap song called Trick Baby on my album Smoke in the Shadow. Maybe we can Spotify that. Um, but I think that what I do is the closest to rap music. Uh, not the music, but the intent of what I'm saying. I mean, because I, I'm constantly protesting injustice, the politics. I'm talking more about early hip-hop. Um, it's just what I do. It's what I've always done. And I, I feel most kinship with that. I don't feel kinship with slam poets, although there are some really great ones. Uh, I went to New York originally to do spoken word in 76, but it didn't really exist at that point because it was post-beat poetry, post-Patti Smith with rock and roll poetry. Slam poetry didn't exist yet. But for some reason, all at the same time around 1980, myself, Jello Biafra, Henry Rollins, Exene Cervenka, started doing, in spite of whatever music we were doing, spoken word and political spoken word stuff, and most of us still do it. I know that you're working with one of the first oh. kind of rap groups oh. that were more like poets, the last oh. poets. God. Shall we listen a bit to them? God, yes. And I will send you a track from my live show with them. I'd love to. Here's When the Revolution Comes. When the Revolution Comes. When the Revolution Comes. When the revolution comes, some of us will probably catch it on TV with chicken hanging from our mouths. You'll know it's revolution because there won't be no commercials. When the revolution comes, when the revolution comes, preacher pimps are gonna split the scene with the communion wine stuck in their back pockets. Faggots won't be so funny then, and all the junkies will quit their nod and wake up when the revolution comes. When the revolution comes, transit cops will be crushed by the trains after losing their guns, and blood will run through the streets of Harlem, drowning anything without substance when the revolution comes. When the revolution this is early 70s, right? Way, way before... Rap. Sugar Hill Gang. And yes. Well, I mean, and they were sampled extensively by a lot of rappers. Um, you know, the, the big race riot upheaval in America was about 67, 68, but then it carried on really in the West Coast, which is where some of the last poets were from. But, I mean, they're from all over. Um, they were very influential to a lot of people, not only people that became rappers. I mean, my generation were very... I mean, Weasel Walter, who I've been playing with for years now, was very influenced by The Last Poets, Tim Dahl. Um, you know, and that whole period of black music, I mean, also like The Temptations, even, Ball of Confusion, stuff like this, that was before that. So we'll say, like, from The Temptations, uh, and then, of course, Curtis Mayfield... And that whole period of black consciousness raising can't fucking take it anymore. Music was so important. 
Uh, but and what, what's interesting is that it was so groovy, but a lot of us that were inspired by it, unless we were rappers, did not do groovy music. I mean, I don't do groovy music, but I took the spirit of their protest and maybe just drove it a little bit more aggressively forward. And so I had an idea a few years ago. I was at UCLA um, University in California proposing some ideas, and one of them just popped out of my mouth, and it was called No Wave Out. And it was No Wave Music, Out Jazz, and Last Poets. Uh, that just went over their head, and they're like, oh, why don't you come and talk to the students for two hours every Tuesday in the cafeteria? I'm like, forget about it. So I was two days later going back to New York, and I was in a taxi with the friend's address, and I'm like, I'll stop here two blocks away at this cafe. I, just, I needed to get a drink and something to eat. So I go in there, and nobody's in there but this really straight-looking black dude and, like, his 10-year-old kid who looked very hip, and uh, I go out to smoke a cigarette, and he comes out after me going, oh, yeah, I met your friend Shaney. She said you were coming around these parts. I'm like, okay, hello. And he said, um, Teenage Jesus, St. Ed's Pie, Queen of Sam, like naming my earliest uh, from 77. I'm like, how, how do you know this? And he said uh, he was an engineer at one of the big studios then, and now he was teaching, musical engineer, he's teaching engineering at NYU. What's going on? Well, I always have a million things going on. You know, I've always got like <laughs> at least four projects going on. But I just, for some reason, said, well, I was just at UCLA proposing this idea, No Wave Out. I didn't even know if any of the Last Poets were still alive at this point. And I said, you know, No Wave, Out Jazz, Last Poets. He's like, Last Poets? Last Poets, I have two unreleased albums by Umar Ben Hassan. I'm like, what? And so, okay, so now he's going to get me a meeting with Umar Ben Hassan. So imagine this. I know a lot about The Last Poets. What the hell are they going to know about me? Now, here comes a 65-year-old radical black poet, and he's going to vet me. Oh, my gosh. Terrifaction. What is he going to see? A Richard Kern movie? Uh, <laughs> a Teenage Jesus video? I mean, not, it doesn't matter. In my 40 years of my career, there is nothing I would even suggest he see to understand what I am. You know what I mean? How am I going to express to him, really, how close we are? Because it's not in my art. How his... The impact Last Poets had, or Curtis Mayfield, or so many other you know artists of that period, how are they going to understand when I took the inspiration, but I twisted in such a different direction? Even my spoken word, which is at such a hysterical level, and so ungroovy... And so alienating, whereas they were trying to create this community, like we're in this, you know, this is our collective experience. So I could only do it the one way I have to do it with most people anyway, which, which was through humor. So finally there's going to be a meeting. And uh, all right. And he, you know, stumbles in because he's got back problems. Like I got back problems. And he's been, I mean, these people have been ripped off left, right, and center. And who is this? And what is this, meaning me, does she want with us? You know, what does she want with me? What the hell? Now, the guy that set up the meeting understood how there could be a connection between teenage Jesus and the last poets, between my spoken word and the last poets, but because he had a broad understanding of alternative music. We bonded over pimp juice that would be Hennessy. Hey, we had a Hennessy together, which I was drinking cognac at the time. And then he said to me at one point, so we're just talking, he goes, yeah, I've got 10 kids and I had three wives. I said, you did that backwards, didn't you, son? He goes, yes, I did. And I said, have you ever been with a white woman? He said, no, I haven't. I go, well, you're not going to be with one tonight because you're looking at biggie motherfucking smalls. And he almost fell off his chair and then he got me. Then he got me. So I had to actually win him over with humor and then we went into the studio a couple of months later and just were talking, just talking, just talking. And then uh, we went in the studio a few months later and we recorded some stuff. And then I got us a gig and we recorded, it was at the Public Theater in New York, which is very reputable, Joe's Pub. And we recorded this, I'm working on a documentary and we recorded both nights. And it's something I would really like to bring to jazz festivals. So it's Baba Tunde, who was one of the original percussionists, Umar Ben Hassan, whose big track was This Is Madness, which that's a track you need to play. And uh, Umar and I got together and we just put got our poems out and just went back and forth. Like we had a session before the, but the music was improv. I was conducting it 
Tim was directing the vibe, Tim Dahl, and uh, it was the highlight of my life. And that I'm not doing a hundred free shows a year with this group in cities all around the world while America sits murdering, lying, and dying is uh, the only heartbreak of my career. I mean, look, I've done what I've done. I think I'm the most successful artist I know because I've done everything I wanted to do with everybody I wanted to do it. And by the way, don't ask me who I'd like to work with because it's never who I want to work with. It's I always have the concept first and then whoever suits the concept. So I can't sit here and go, I'd like to work with... Even when I had the No Wave Out concept... I didn't even know if the last poets were alive. That was probably one of the only times I thought, okay, I need to do something with this. Who's ever still around from that? For people who aren't familiar with the, with the term, what is no wave? Yeah, so no wave is a period and a style of music that basically was from 1976 to 1979, basically New York. Um... Uh, some claim I made that title up, it's possible because I was very into no, 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 just about everything, very anti-everything. And at that time, you were the leader of the band Teenage Jesus and I the Jerks. Started, I went to New York to do Spoken Word, but it didn't exist at that point, and so I started a band that was half instrumental. I wrote the music, played guitar, and sang the lyrics. It was called Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. The songs were from 30 seconds to maybe two minutes. The sets were seven minutes to 13 minutes. It was the most, has nothing to do with punk rock, first of all, no no wave. So what was the big difference between punk rock yeah, and so no a wave? A few things. Punk rock, you say punk rock, you pretty much know what it sounds like. You say no wave, none of the bands sounded alike, and they certainly weren't punk rock. Punk rock mainly is, again, back to this communal thing, like this community thing. It's a social thing. No wave is more about personal insanity, Uh, and most of the people were insane. That were, But there was also no way photographers, no way filmmakers. So it was a period of extremely nihilistic, kind of a generation. I would say people that were born between 55 and 63, mostly, who realized the 60s failed. The summer of love was a lie. Charles Manson was a maniac that we all... We're happy to see broke up, you know, the the peace and calm that wasn't really there. Uh, Nixon was in power. Kennedy was assassinated. Kent State happened. New York City was bankrupt. And basically the president said, fuck off to New York. So much crime and so much drugs. And uh, we were just basically throwing temper tantrums. But within the four main no-wave bands, there was, for instance, the contortions, which which were kind of groovy, James Chance and the Contortions. Yeah, let's listen to the Contortions. Let's listen to it. What makes the contortions no wave is even though they were the most commercial in a sense because they're funk based R&B based it's more the attitude and the acidity and also no wave is not audience friendly we don't give a shit there wasn't an audience we didn't care if the audience was there and it wasn't about the audience no we're not all in this together we're all having a personal temper tantrum and uh, so the, the, actually the first no wave band in my opinion was Mars which was also on the No New York album which was an album produced by Eno that had the contortions Teenage Jesus Mars and DNA and I saw Mars uh, and then that that wanting to do spoken word but after seeing the group Mars and most of the people were insane in that band I decided I had to form a band sounding of course nothing like Mars and then the James Chance was originally in Teenage Jesus, but he wanted to mingle with the audience too much, and Teenage Jesus was really like a cold front moving in of a fascistically tight beat with screeching guitar and uh, a child throwing a temper tantrum who looked like a babyface killer, basically. That's a very incredible concept. I don't even know how I came up with it. And then DNA, which was more of a very disjointed kind of rhythmic thing so within just those four groups and there were others uh the sound had nothing to do with each other but the intensity did and the weirdness and the outsider factor did and i consider it had more in common with the surrealist the dadaist weimar berlin 
Um, but no wave is a state of mind. I still consider what I do no wave. I consider that <laughs> because in relation to the surrealist, the Dadaist, or Weimar Republic, I mean, it's more of a state of uh, existence, in a sense, and it's an attitude. One band that was heavily influenced by the no wave oh. scene was Sonic Youth. Oh, weren't they just? Death Valley 69. You recorded this song with them. Well, about 30 years first ago. Of all, I mean, first of all, Thurston Moore wrote a song about me called She's in a Bad Mood from one of their first EPs, which is a great song. He, he wrote the song about you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, Thurston and I then, you know, we just were... Actually, Thurston did my first spoken word show with me. Oh. We had met, and finally I come back to New York, so I'm going to start curating spoken word shows, which I've done a lot of over the years in different cities. And I said, Thurston, let's go for a walk. And we'll go to So I just started telling him this horrible story, uh, just dreadful. And he was just, oh my God, that's, oh, he's so naive and sweet. It's like, oh, I mean, oh my, oh, that's horrible. Oh, Lydia, I can't believe that. And I said, you're doing exactly that tomorrow night. I'm doing a spoken word. You're playing my straight man. And he said, okay. I, I thought that song kind of, you know, still paid your rent. So you don't get royalties from it? Honey, your love don't pay my rent. My record royalties aren't going to pay my rent. My spoken and live words, my live shows pay my rent. No, they don't pay my rent. So how uh, did you write that song? Thurston Just, and Death I were on a bus. 69. Thurston and I were on a bus going up to Spanish Harlem where I lived at the time. And we just started writing the lyrics. And we wrote the lyrics on a bus. And there you go. And it's their best song. And it's one of my favorite songs. And again, it's about... Manson, it's about the end of the, you know, uh, you know, now, 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 Death Valley 69, Sadie, I love it. I mean, talking about, you know, it's about the Manson cult, which all of us were very fixated on for a while, just as not the fact that they were killers, but the fact that they really wanted to just bring helter skelter, bring society to wake up. Um, just the fact that a, a short midget life hypnotic ex well con like manson could convince suburban kids to go on a murder spree was so fascinating to us we were very murderous my generation uh not that we were influenced by manson but we couldn't believe that everybody didn't want to commit murder so like that he convinced you know like some little hotties from the valley to do it to us was no big deal You know, speaking of serial killers, one of my favorite chapters in your book, Paradoxia, is when you and a boyfriend go to the places where Richard Ramirez, the <laughs> night stalker, would dump his victims. And you try to get some kind of, you know, suck vibe. up the, the evil vibe of those locations. Well, what's interesting is the Hillside Stranglers, popular American serial killers, after they were busted, which was, I guess, in the 80s or 90s, it was found out that one of them had been committing this series of killings in my hometown. When I was 11, he was killing 11-year-old girls and dumping them on a strategic map. But he was not found until after they busted him for the hillside strangling crimes. And that was something that really impacted my youth as well, that there was these... The, the last girl that he killed was 11-year-old Puerto Rican girl was running down, can you imagine this, running down the highway for a mile naked and nobody stopped. Nobody stopped. So this, between the race riots, the serial killing, the hell's angels, familial insanity, um, I came out of a very violent background and that I maintain such exquisite control is because art is the self to the universal wound, and I've used it as such. And also because any violence that has been done against me, by me, for me, with me, is minor compared to the possibilities and the reality that most of the other, the rest of the world faces. Which is why I could talk about things like uh, incest, 
when nobody was talking about it. Because my situation was not the worst. And I felt I had to be the voice for those that want to scream but just can't articulate it. And I think, you know, my situation was unique because most women uh, who have, as girls, been traumatized by whatever familial persecution of any form, okay, abuse of any sort, and boys as well, they usually, boys usually turn the aggression outward, women usually turn it inward, I never turned it inward, I always turned it outward, and that gave me the power to speak about the subjects I speak about, because I know I'm not just speaking about myself, it's like my details are irrelevant, they're minor, they're petty, but other people have been through this and so much more, and somebody needs to be the voice for that, and hello, here I am. You got you got your nickname Lunch from the band Mink. Don't you love saying that? Say it again. Would you mind saying just Lydia Lunch? You got your nickname Lydia Lunch. From it kind of rolls off the tongue, right? It sounds very porno, it, don't you think? I've never thought of it of it that way, but Well, maybe you should start thinking about it. Hey, you're you're sitting on you know, my book Paradoxia, honey. If you don't think I'm porno, I don't know what I am. You know what, what what is your porn name? You know you take your <laughs> mother's name as a maiden and add the name of your first pet yeah. as the first name. So my 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 poor name would be Conrad Schelander. Conrad was my um yeah. hamster. So what would yours be? I guess mine would be Vickery Butch. <laughs> that's a, like that's Butch the... Priest. <laughs> Better than Femme Priest, which the fall had a song called. Yeah, I would say I guess it would be Vickery Butch. I kinda like that one. I'm sitting here with my legs spread wide open. It's only because, you know, when my balls are this big you can't really wear pants. Just kidding. All right. What were you talking about? Uh, how you got your nickname? Oh lunch. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I think oh, yeah. was it Willie Deville who it gave it to yes. you? It was yes. Okay. I mean, I wasn't. I hadn't even done anything except for perform at two acid parties when I was fourteen in upstate New York. I was, so I was in New York. My first friends were suicide, then Ming Deville, and um, we were all starving. I mean, we were just so poor. I mean, I had various ways of making money. It was like, I decided to get a job for two weeks, which I've never had since, fortunately. Um, and trust me, it's only because I'm an H-U-S-T-L-E-R hustler. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, I got a job at a bar so I could steal food for us, for me and Minkdeville, who were living in fur vaults, like where they store mink coats. Yeah, Mink DeVille. I don't know if they got the name because of the fur vaults they were living in. I just thought of that. So did you actually live inside a fur vault? They were living inside a fur vault. That's super was, cold, right? Yeah, well, it, it's super secure as well. It's like a big safe. It's like a safe for human beings. And this was in like Midtown. This is again the, you know, 76 maybe. I hadn't started Teenage Jesus yet. And so I'm hanging out with Mink DeVille. We're all starving. I get a job at a bar so I can steal food. And one day I'm coming down the street in front of CBGB's. I know it's like classic. 
and they're walking up because I got the I got the goodies, I got the food, and Willie's like Willie Deville's like Lydia lunch, Lydia lunch, and I I mean I just stuck like glue. I didn't choose it, but what's interesting is I would often you know a little bit later cook for all my poor friends. We would steal the food and then we would cook it. You're too poor to. I had various ways of making money. I was much craftier than most people. And then I wrote a cookbook a few years ago called The Need to Feed. I know, just figure that one out. Anyway, one time I was trying to get an interview with Russ Meyer because my friend Lance Loud had done an interview and he goes, you need to call Russ Meyer, Russ Meyer the movie maker. The director was very much into huge breasts. Right, mine were much too small for him. Don't worry about that. I mean, don't let the bra fool you, honey. They're actually... I think he's most famous for Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill, that's Kill. The mo- yeah, that's the most famous one. So I just called him out of the blue uh, to see if I could get an interview and I'm just like, uh, you know, Russ Meyer, this is Lydia Lunch. And he said, Lydia Lunch, Lydia Lunch, it's the greatest name in showbiz. I'm sure he did not know who I was. It's just the name. And that's when I started thinking, it's very porno. I never did the interview because his response was, I'm staring at a pair of 44 double D tits. Can you call me back in an hour or two? I'm just like, oh, Russ, just take your time. (laughs) I think that this is one of the bands that you used to steal food for, or at least cook for. The Dead Boys. This is like the way, one, of the, is best one of the best punk songs of ever. Oh, ever. Best you know, songs ever. Steve Bater's voice and his look. Oh, you know, his mischievous grin. That riff. That riff. Okay, I met Steve Bater's. I wasn't even living in New York yet. Neither was he. He's I, from Ohio, right? I met him in 1973. I was 13 or 14 when I first ran away to New York. I was on St. Mark's Place, and I see this skinny, ratty-looking boy in an Iggy Pop t-shirt. I'm like, who are you? <coughs> and his name wasn't Steve Bader's yet, and my name wasn't Lydia Lunch, and we became pen pals. We actually wrote to each other from Cleveland to Rochester, and all of these cities are like Detroit, Cleveland. It's the Rust Belt. So it's kind of a similar industrial ghetto-scape, really working class, but we were pen pals. And then I got to New York, and then they came to New York, and then they wrote I Need Lunch. But Sonic Reducer is one of the best songs ever written. Well, what's interesting about them is, you know, that song was actually written by David Thomas. Really? Of Perubu. Because they came out of the Cleveland scene, which at that point, a lot of people came out of the Cleveland scene. Adele Verte, who was in the contortions then. Um, the Dead Boys, Perubu, Rocket from the Tombs, Peter Loeffner, who died before he got to New York, who wrote some great So There was first Rocket from the Tombs, which was half Dead Boys, half Perubu. Then they split up. But David Thomas wrote some of Sonic Reducer. My band Retrovirus, which is a retrospective, which I've been touring around now for a few years with Weasel Walter, Tim Dahl, and Bob Bird, who was in Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore and Chrome Cranks. We actually started covering Final Solution by Perubu. Oh, that's a great song. Yeah, let's play it on my Sono speaker. Yeah, it's really great. The girls won't touch me because I've got a misdirection. I love the name Retrovirus that you used for your one of your projects, but I, I didn't realize that it was an actual medical term. <laughs> well, I, 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 thought, I thought you came up with the expression Retrovirus, <coughs> no. you know, like, as if, you know, making a statement against yeah. nostalgia in a way. Well, and it, yes, it's perfect for that because it, it is, 
just because it's a retrospective of my music, it's not nostalgic because nobody's heard my music. So what? it's like this is all new <laughs> stuff. Nobody's heard any. And most of them have never been played live. I mean, I would often do, I would have a concept, get the people together, make a record, often not tour, next, and do that again. And then tour, but sometimes tour not with the record I had just made. I mean, no, because I would be already bored with it, so I would be touring something else. So a lot of the music I did was never heard live. Uh, I was just invited to something, and I decided to put this retrospective together. And Bob Bird, who I've known for 35 years, he's seen more shows of mine than any man alive. I called him first. I thought it was time for him to get involved. And it was going to be a retrospective. And then I called Algis Kizzies, who was in Swans. He's been replaced by Tim Dahl now. And then Weasel Walter volunteered for this, which I only knew him as a drummer, but I didn't realize what an amazing guitar... Because you have to, with Retrovirus, do Bob Klein, who was in Richard Hell and the Voidoids. You have to uh, cover, sometimes when we do Teenage Jesus, my guitar, but Roland S. Howard of Birthday Party. Um, and that was... The guitar player was... I, I had a list of 15, but I didn't even call any of them, except for Paul Leary of Butthole Surfers who once told me I changed his life with my most obscure record, but when it was time for him to step up to the plate, he goes, I'm just going to sit home and collect royalty checks. I'm like, you suck. <laughs> and Weasel Walter stepped in and said, I'll do it, and I know all the songs, so that was great. And um, so we've been to, Retrovirus is the longest incarnation of anything I've done, mainly because we do short tours, like two, three weeks, a lot in Europe. We'll be in Europe in December. Um, but because I have... 300 songs so the set list can change and I just think it's inter it's interesting for me now to see this trajectory of my own musical schizophrenia and a lot of young people are coming to the show and plus then we do things like Black Juju by Ellis Cooper we do Frankie Teardrop by Suicide now we started doing Final Solution so it's really more of an emotional psychotic musical schizophrenia through uh, my musical history and, and it's uh, great fun and the band is amazing so we just keep doing it here's a song that you covered once with uh, Roland S. Howard some velvet morning when I'm straight I'm gonna open up your gate and me Tell you about Phaedra And how she gave me life And how she made it in um, I was living in L.A. After I left New York in 79, I went to L.A. And I had started this band called 1313. And I started the birthday party. I was listening to the birthday party. Their first album just came out. And Joy Division. And... Um, and then I was going to New York, and I went to New York, and the birthday party were playing, I couldn't believe it. And I went right up to them, and there's 20 people in the, in the audience, and I went up to Roland S. Howard, and I'm just like, you are, you are the king. And he said, and you are the queen. And I'm like, yes, I am. And he proposed that we do some velvet morning right on the spot, and I'm like, I'm moving to London to work with you, that's it. And I just decided to, I went right to London a few weeks later. And then they were on tour. So I was just kind of abandoned there, but I didn't care. I was going to wait for them. And then Roland and I, um, we started doing 10-minute improvisational guitar and vocal stuff before the birthday party, which the rest of them poo-pooed. Oh, well. Um, Roland and I did some Velvet Morning uh, with I Fell in Love with a Ghost. Barry Anderson of Magazine played on it. He lived one block away from me uh, in London. And then Roland and I started working on this record called Honeymoon in Red, which um, I sing some songs with Nick Cave. Most of the birthday party are on it. But then the tapes were lost for eight years in Berlin. We recorded it. I don't even know how. Somebody gave us some money. The tapes were lost for eight years. I finally mysteriously got them back, and it took another few years to get it out. And it's just been reissued again, Honeymoon in Red. So I lived in London for two years. I went back to New York, blah, blah. And then at one point, I was in New York from 84 to 90, and I went moved to New Orleans. Cancer Alley. Uh, it was great in New Orleans, where I took gun training. And I'm like, wait a minute. So I want to do some swamp rock. I'm in a swamp. Who else would I get but Rolandis Howard? Again, that's how my concepts work. So I had to find the money. I don't even know how I managed to, because most of my albums were 
really small budgets for recording. And often I'd have to raise the budget from Smoking Word or the record companies gave such little money, but we were so good at what we did that we could record. I mean, now thank GarageBand, I record albums for zero, but we could record an album in two days because we would practice, hello, and we knew the song. So I got the money to bring Roland down to New Orleans, which was kind of a disaster. Not a disaster, but it was kind of sad because he was, Roland was dying from the minute I met him. He was very fragile, physically very fragile, heavy drug abuse, just too sensitive for this world. I mean, he was such a sweet, sensitive, funny, lovely human being. Unlike some of the other members of the birthday party, no names be mentioned. Every note he played, and he understood space, which most people don't. Like most guitar players, it's constant noise. They can't have one second of silence. He understood that the space between breaths is where the drama was. This is immaculate. Let's listen to one of his songs. Well, so long, baby. I've had enough I can't ignore it I miss you so He has the right, you know, Lee Hazelwood-ish Lee Hazelwood, Leonard Cohen It's something yeah, in that deep, vein deep, baritone right. voice Yeah, it's in that vein We did a few uh, shows, just the two of us where he would do some of his own songs and even like, oh, a heartbreaking version of Lonesome Town by Ricky Nelson. And then we would do some of our songs together, but we also did two songs from Berlin. We would do Oh Jim, oh, the duet. You mean Lou Reed's um, Berlin yes, album? Lou Reed, yes, one of my favorite albums of all time. And we would do uh, Caroline Says. And oh, these were heartbreaking. These were amazing, yeah. I'm standing in a suit as ragged as my nerves and I agree what I've become is surely worth the hatred that you spent on me the stars above me the night so deep that I could trip or drown and still I see that you would dearly love to shut me down A real American oddity. I mean, I just released an album. This is tragic because... Uh, so I work with one of my bands at the present time. It's not really a band. It's a one-man band, Cypress Grove. And we released an album called A Fistful of Desert Blues. And it's what I like to say, my country album. It's not really country, but it's more bluesy. We're going to play some of that. I'd love, I'd love to think of you as a country artist. Well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, what was the stuff I was doing with Roland kind of had a country vibe. I mean, it's not that far off. I grew up listening to country music. I hated it as a child, but my father listened to Johnny Cash endlessly. Uh, you hate it, then you grow to love it. And then you go to do it. And uh, so anyway, Cypress Grove... I, I, I think maybe you need to be in a few really bad relationships until you can understand oh, country hello. and Western music. I mean, and hello, you know? welcome to the club. So um, uh, a few years ago, I was approached by this, by Jim Sklavunas, who's been in many of my bands and now drums with Nick Cave and Grinder Man. And uh, he was involved in this project with this guy, Cypress Grove, who I'd never heard of, who had, who played Jeffrey Lee Pierce of the Gun Club's last tour when Jeffrey was really fucked up and, 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 and just on his last legs, literally his last legs. And Cypress Grove was playing guitar with him. And so anyway, Cypress Grove was cleaning out his closet. This is maybe about now say seven or eight years ago, and he found this cassette that said JLP, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, and it was unreleased songs. So he started doing these tributes to Jeffrey Lee Pierce, which Glitterhouse Records put out. And he, he asked me to be on the first one, so I sang two of Jeffrey Lee Pierce's songs, and then I'm like, wait a minute, this guy's Cypress Grove. Where the hell has he been hiding? He's so good. And I, I said, do you want to write some songs with me? He said, okay. So I'd send him on a wild goose chase, like, go listen to, you know, this bluegrass song, Hazel Dickens, the one I love is gone, and go listen to the Buckwheat Zydeco version of When the Levee Breaks, and write a song that's not like that, but is. So I'd send him on this wild goose chase, and he was, you know, doing these volumes. He's, I think he's done four volumes now of tributes to Jeffrey Lee Pierce. Nick Cave is on it, Mark Lanigan, Debbie Harry, myself, Iggy Pop, all sorts of great people doing great covers of songs that were never recorded. And so we started recording a bunch of music, Garage Band, 
really good quality, and he was playing almost every instrument Cypress Grove. So we compiled this album called A Fistful of Desert Blues, and I, I cover a Mark Lanigan song, and I'd never heard the Mark Lanigan version, uh, but even Mark Lanigan said it was better than his version. I was very happy to hear. We covered TB Sheets as well. So anyway, we release A Fistful of De- Des- Desert Blues, and I, but before we're releasing it, I'm like, I gotta, tr- it's, I don't want to say it's the most commercial thing I've ever done, but it's the thing that people seem to really, it's beautiful car driving music. People really responded to it, you know, when I was playing them stuff. Not like I was trying to be, it's just another aspect of my musical schizophrenia. It's kind of like a lost jukebox in Georgia because the songs are different, but they're somehow related. And, you know, Van Morrison, TV Sheets, Revolver by Mark Lanigan. And these songs, there's one song on it. I'm going to sing you a little bit. And it sounds like a cover song. It's like, I'll be damned if I do what you deserve done to you. I'm damned if I don't, which is worse. I'm damned for loving the man. Yeah, who doesn't know that loving like this is a curse? So anyway, we have these songs. And I'm like, I got to try to get this record out. I'm like, so, uh, and I had never met him yet. We'd done like eight, ten songs. I'd never met him. He was in London and I was in Barcelona. We are doing this by Garage Band. He'd send me a song. I'd get the inspiration. Ten minutes later, I'd sing it and send it to him. He's playing almost all the instruments. So I'm like, I got to try to get this record released. But I wanted it to be in a special package as well. Because like, I'm like, come on, I've released enough records in a country. Who cares? So we, so I go, Cypress Grove. Tony, I'm like, I want to send this out. Can you tell me your publishing information just so I can send it out, try to get this put out? Radio silence. He goes, I never wrote a song before. I'm like, "Eh." wait a minute. I literally felt like I went to sleep with the bartender and woke up with Ted Bundy. I don't know why I felt so creeped (laughs) out. I don't know why I felt so creepy. I'm like, you never wrote a song and you just wrote eight perfect songs. I literally rejected one song out of ten. I'm like, you never wrote a song before, and you've just written me all these perfect songs because I guess I was waiting for you. I'm like, amazing. So anyway, we put that out, and then we put out an EP, a split EP with this Italian group. And, you know, I've covered a lot of cover songs in my in my day. I love cover songs. I've covered, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper. I've covered Some Velvet Morning, Why Don't We Do It in the Road by the Beatles. Um, I've covered... That Smell by Leonard Skinner took me 10 years to find a band that could understand what I was talking about. And then with, uh, when Cypress Grove and I were going to do an EP, I'm like, I have to cover one of the most hated songs. Hated by me and many other people, because we've heard it a million times. Hotel California. And we do an amazing version of it. And then people started making these incredible videos for it. I mean, with the cover stuff. You know, I haven't heard that version. Let's listen to it. California, one of the Eagles dies. Yeah. We cover Midnight Rider, Greg Allman dies. We covered Steely Dan. Can you imagine? I cover Steely Dan, the worst band ever in the world. And they died. Do it again. And he died. So we also have a song on there by a great young um, singer-songwriter called Aaron Lee Tashin, who I actually heard writing this song called A Thousand Miles of Bad Road, which I thought was a cover. And Cypress Grove is going to see him tonight. He goes, should I t- should I give him a warning? I'm like, he's not going to die. He's only 30. Uh, I'm like, maybe we should cover a Phil Collins song. I'd like to get rid of that asshole, actually. So anyway. All the family room at the Hotel California Anytime of year You can find it here He took the bomb Here's a song written by a bunch of your fans.
Bikini Kill was part of this movement called the Riot Girl movement in the early 90s. And I don't the, take any responsibility for that. They, they, they had two big um, sources of inspiration, you and Joan Jett. I've actually seen people with What Would Lydia Lunch Do t-shirts. Yeah, of course. No, and I say that all the time to people. WWLD. Exactly. They should pay attention to that. Uh, I don't find my influence in the Riot Girls, and I'll tell you for this reason. First of all, my music was never poppy. It was not punk rock. It had nothing to do with three chords. If they would have picked up a tuba and had a three-piece tuba band, that would have been more in keeping with my ideology. So just because they picked up instruments, but then started playing bad pop punk rock like so many that's not what I set out to do and I don't feel responsible for inspiring that Kim Gordon maybe not me um and actually women have started three-piece tuba groups which I'm very happy to say I forget their name but they told me recently I was like very happy a three-piece tuba band oh yeah because oh. I would always say when people say what is your advice to young female musicians I'm like get, get a tuba become an architect make better drugs or play the tuba <laughs> so finally someone's listened to me. But I don't find, I mean, if I inspire anybody to do anything, that's great. But I don't find any artistic connection between what I have done and what Riot Girl has done. I'd like to play you my favorite sleazy song. This is Sex Dwarf by Soft Cell. Oh, yeah. According to Mark Allman, who sings this, the lyrics were inspired by an article in the British tabloid with the headline Sex Dwarf Lures Disco Dollies to a Life of Vice. So he read that in the newspaper yeah. and he wrote the song. Right. But you had a band with him or a super group. No, no. I, well, I, I would... Look, I wouldn't... I would... No, I, I did a series of performances with him, Nick Cave and Jim Thurwell, a.k.a. Fetus. We were all standing in a club in London when I was living there, and I just said, let's go to New York for Halloween, and let's do this kind of vaudeville show. And so we went, and Mark Allman was very lovely and, and actually took me in in London for a while. Um, has a great sense of humor and perversity. Great talent. Um, version of Tainted Love, one of the best songs ever, let's face fact. And was just a lovely person. And so somehow... Uh, with my H-U-S-T-L-E-R hustling skills, I managed to get us some shows, and we did this kind of vaudevillian called The Immaculate Consumptive. There are tapes floating around. I'm sure it was awful, but it was a damn good time, and obviously something like that was just thought up on the spur of the moment, like No Wave Out, but I was able to actually get it to happen. I mean, I got a lot of things to happen and still do because I'm just stubborn and persistent. Sex tool in a gold rolls, making it with the dumb sugar. Isn't it nice? Sugar and spice, luring disco dollars to a life of vice. Sex dwarf, isn't it nice? Luring disco dollars to a life of vice. What was interesting about that period is Blondie which we would just laugh hysterically watching Blondie. We thought they were the worst band ever in the world, but, but, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein are two of the coolest people on the planet. Like the first time I met Chris Stein, we would just call her Lollipop. Oh, she was the most beautiful woman in the world at that point. She has no vanity, Debbie Harry. She has no clue how beautiful she was. So I'm at Max's Kansas City, must be 77. I have teenage Jesus. And Chris Stein comes up to me and goes, let up, let up. I really love Teenage Jesus, and I'm like, so? <laughs> I just give him a dead eye, and he goes, no, no, I really love them, and I go, you know what? You're fucking cool, because he wasn't going to be shafted by my arrogance. He's like, no, no, I really think, I really like it. It's really great. I'm like, you're so cool. Uh, Debbie here, he never had any, we'd go to wrestling matches at Madison Square Garden together. She had no idea how beautiful she was. I don't know if she does to this day. And they were always so supportive of everybody. They didn't have to be. They got really ripped off. But they were the biggest band in the world at one point. Their bank account doesn't attest to that. So you were a big wrestling fan? 
Oh, I was a huge wrestling fan, but you know, for the comedy. We go to Madison Square Garden and watch the wrestlers. And scream and have fun. Yeah. I love roller derby. I like boxing. I like rodeo. I like motorcycle racing. This is a young Swedish band called Dolores Hayes, and they've had some fine reviews in England. Iggy Pop played them on his radio show, and they've uh, described themselves as just like the Spice Girls, but disgusting. Ha! No, you think it's awful So Dolores Hayes are, they just turned 20, so it's a very young band. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's no, I'm not going to say anything. Um, uh, one of my favorite bands was actually from Gothenburg, was Union Carbide. And I saw them in New York when they first came there. And I still think of any band, of any kind of derivative music, and they were still, re- there is nobody that ever sounded so much like the Stooges than the sound they got. And I was always very impressed with that. I still love Union. I love Union Carbide. I love Monster Magnet. Nobody would ever think. I asked Monster Magnet to cover That Smell by Leonard Skinner with me, and they just didn't jump to the table in time. Um, it's, it's funny you should mention Union Carbide, because Ebert Lundberg, the singer, was sitting yeah. in that chair a few months ago. Well, I'm sorry he wasn't sitting here a few months after me. Maybe he could have still smelt my ass. I'm just saying that because I love him. So, Frank, here we are. We've been here for hours. I wish we were here for days, actually. This has been fabulous. I mean, I'm ready to move in. You have enough space to take me in, but I think... You know, I'd love to have you here in this room as a... Thank you for a permanent mascot. Yes. Um, I know you, like so many others, need lunch, but I need dinner, and you are buying it for me. I am buying you dinner. Thanks You're for so coming kind. on Thank the podcast. You. I mean, see how cheap I am sometimes? Oh, my gosh. It was wonderful to be here. Awesome. We're giving ourselves a round of applause. Actually, we're spanking each other off. <laughs> Den här podcasten producerades av Leon Media i samarbete med Sonos. Daniel Bäckström var producent och Lydia Lamsch var hemmaomstragen.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.